You're listening to Ecclesia, a study of church history, part of the podcast ministry of Sycamore Baptist Church in Decatur, Texas. My name is CJ Frazier. I'm the senior pastor here at Sycamore Baptist Church, and I would like to personally invite you to join us for worship. For more information about our church, please visit www.sycamoredecatur.com. And now, we hope you enjoy this session's podcast on church history. And as we get started this evening, I want to begin by just recommending a couple of resources that I think might be helpful for this particular session. This is our third session, and tonight we're going to cover early Christian heresies. I know that's everybody's favorite subject is first and second century Christian heresies. So because you're so excited about that, I'm going to give you a couple of resources that may be helpful. One of them uh, is uh, more expansive. Well, actually, they both are. They both cover a plethora of cults and Christian heresies. And one of them is called the Cultish Podcast. So for those of you that like to listen to podcasts, that is an excellent podcast to listen to. I would recommend that to anybody. Um, Mackenzie and I really gained a lot and learned a lot about the various ways in which people have misconstrued the Bible and, and you know, really started movements that are really not Christianity at all from, from that. So I would, I would uh, point you to that. And also with that, a book that they recommend is a book called Kingdom of the Cults, and it's by a man who is now deceased, and his name was Walter Martin. They call him Uncle Wally on the podcast, but, uh, but Walter Martin is the name of that man. Kingdom of the Cults is the name of that book. So if you're interested in learning more about the world of the cults, uh, you, can, you can look to that. And I would just remind us all as well that uh, our study of, of what is false should never override our study of what is true. And so the point this evening of studying some of these first and second century so-called Christian heresies is not that we would become experts in what is wrong, but instead that we would be able to have examples of ways in which people have interpreted the Bible wrongly, and that we would be able to correct wrong interpretations of the Bible when we see them today. And as we begin, it shouldn't surprise us to arrive at the subject of the pure versus the harmful teachings of Scripture this early in our study of church history. And the reason for that is because false teachers find their beginnings even as far back as the Garden of Eden. You realize that the very first false teacher is the one who is behind all false teaching, Satan himself. And the very first false teaching was in the Garden of Eden through one simple question, did God really say? You could boil down all false teaching to that one question, did God really say? It was the first question asked by Satan to Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it really is the same question that's being asked nowadays by those who don't believe the Bible. Is that really true? Is there really a God? If there is really a God, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? As Christians, we need to be able to defend not only that God has said, but that this is what God means by what he has said. Well, if you fast forward a few centuries from Genesis chapter 3 to Deuteronomy chapter 18, what you're going to find is that parts of God's law deal with, and they explain not only what to do with false teachers, but they also explain how to identify them in the first place. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 18, you have the test of true and false 
prophets. We won't read that tonight, but I would invite you to go in and look at that chapter sometime. Now, the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, was a world that was filled with folks that sought to relentlessly undermine the word of God. And the lies of these false teachers followed closely behind the truth from God's mouth. You know, we've been looking at first century Christianity thus far in our study of church history and how it's remarkable that Christianity spread so quickly in the first and the second centuries that it literally went thousands of miles on foot. Well, guess what was walking in its footsteps right behind it? False teaching, false teachers. So many of the New Testament letters written by Paul, the Apostle John, by Peter, just to name a few, they deal primarily with some of those false teachings. And so we will look at some of those as we begin our study now. And so I want to begin with by a study of the apostles, Peter, James, and John. And I want to look at their early battles for truth. Their early battles for truth. So let's begin this evening by surveying some of the earliest heresies that challenged the teachings of the apostles. There are any number of problematic doctrines that plagued the first century church, but for the sake of time, we're going to hone in on just three of the apostles as well as three unique heresies that they battled. And before we do that, we need to first define the word heresy itself. So I'll begin with a story. During a time of fellowship, a Sunday school class was playing the game of Pictionary. And so a man picked up a card with a prompt of what he was to draw on the whiteboard, and the prompt said, Harry Tick. And so the man took out his Expo marker, went up to the board, and immediately proceeded to draw a picture of Benny Hinn. Harry Tick. Heretic. Okay, the folks online got that one. Thank y'all, those of you who are listening on Zoom. I knew that y'all would like that more than you did, but uh, anyway... But obviously, it's important that we identify what heresy is, because unless you have a good definition for what heresy is, it's hard to identify who false teachers are. So let me give us a working definition of heresy. This is straight out of a textbook that I had in seminary by uh, two men, Nathan Holstein and Michael J. Spiegel. And they said that heresy, quote, denotes conscious, willful departure from the faith's foundational tenets, such as the Trinity, Christ's deity and humanity, his atoning death and resurrection, and so forth. They go on to say heretics, by definition, are not Christians, close quote. Now, that is a heavy and a very pointed definition, and, and it's it, that they would go so far as to say and to claim that those who teach and propound false doctrine over and over again are not only false teachers, but they're not Christians to begin with. And let me just qualify that by saying this. There is a marked difference between error and heresy. Okay, You can say something that's wrong. You can say something that is off base. There have been times in my preaching where I have misspoken, or maybe I have misquoted something, or sometimes when even somebody misunderstood something that I said, or maybe I said something in such a way such that it was in error. But I want to draw a distinction between error and heresy. Error is when you are wrong. Heresy is when you're made aware that you're wrong and you refuse to correct it. Those who fall into the category of heresy are those who continue in error and they don't care. They continue in error and they're not willing 
to be humble enough to submit to the truth, even when they're told over and over and over again. When we say that heretics are not Christians, it's not that nobody has told them that they're wrong. It's that they've been told that they're wrong and they refuse to do anything about it. I want us to recognize also that error can pertain to beliefs regarding second and third level issues. So when I say second and third level issues, I mean things that don't pertain specifically to the basics of the faith. So baptism, that's a second and third level issue. We don't look at Presbyterians on the whole and say, you guys are heretics because you baptize babies. We don't agree with you, but we're not going to call you heretics. I would say there's probably some Presbyterians that have better theology and doctrine than I do. I would also say this, you know, on issues like the Lord's Supper, there's going to be other churches that do that differently. On, it, on issues like church membership, there's going to be other denominations that do things differently. That's not what we mean by heresy. Heresy pertains to first-degree issues like salvation, the nature of God, the definition of sin. Heresy typically denies what is plainly spelled out in the word of God. So I hope you can kind of see the difference. When we talk about heresy and heretics, false teachers, we're talking about people that are not just one or two steps into false teaching. They're like swimming around in it. They are playing around in it. They, they love to teach this false teaching and this false doctrine. I'll just remind you that false teaching and false teachers are not simply out here on the fringes and are you know, somehow in some way indifferent toward the truth. No, they hate the truth. They may disguise it, but they genuinely hate it. It was John Calvin who said, where the word of the Lord is not, it is not a union of believers, but a faction of the ungodly. So false teachers are not simply indifferent toward the truth. They hate the truth. They know what the truth is. They just hate it, and they teach the opposite of what is true. Let's look at a few examples in the New Testament of early Christian heresy, because these are running all throughout the pages of the New Testament. The defense of the truth is standing and battling against false teaching all throughout the New Testament. So the first place I want us to look is to the Apostle Paul and the so-called Colossian heresy of Colossians chapter 2. You can turn there if you want to look there. I'm not going to read that whole chapter. We're just going to simply summarize a few of these things. Here's the way that Steve Lawson summarized the Colossian heresy. He said the Colossian heresy was, quote, really four different strands of heresy merged together to form one colossal false religion, including Jewish legalism, dualistic Gnosticism, Eastern mysticism, as well as, fourth, a strict asceticism of not eating and not drinking, and not touching certain things. And it's all rolled together to form one syncretistic fusing of, now listen to this, dietary laws, angel worship, Sabbath observances, circumcision was practiced, mystical experiences, this dualistic Greek philosophy of Gnosticism, revelatory messages from God through dreams and visions and supposed voices, ceremonial rites, and a study of the movement of the stars. Lawson goes on to say there's a lot in that omelet, close quote. Here's what I want us to recognize. True Christianity cannot simply be thrown into a theological blender. You can't take the teachings of Jesus 
and just slap them on with the teachings of some other ancient religion and call it good or call it something that, that God looks down upon and smiles. What you have is not another version of Christianity. What you end up having is nothing short of a cult. And we need to recognize this, that when it comes to false teachers, we're not simply just dealing with these kind of people who are on the fringes of Christianity. No, instead, what you're dealing with are people who are not Christians, and they're muddying the waters because they're putting forth what they teach as another version of Christianity. You've heard me use these two examples before, but there are two modern-day examples that I believe really summarize this well. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, the Watchtower Society, both of those groups claim to be Christian groups, or at least that they have Christian roots, and yet they could not be farther from Christianity. It's important that we recognize this. The second one I want us to recognize is Peter and his dealings with the Judaizers. There's a positive example in Acts 15, and there's a negative example in Galatians chapter 2. So look first at Acts chapter 15. I'll read a couple of verses with you. To set the scene in the context, what we're going to deal with here is Peter's response to the Judaizers, those who were claiming that you first had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. And we're going to deal with Peter's response to them concerning Gentile believers in Acts chapter 15 at what came to be known the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15 verse 5 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there were certain Jewish Christians in the first century that believed that these Gentile Christians ought to fully embrace all of the teachings of the law before they could become Christian. We'll look to verse 7 and we'll see how Peter responded. The word says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, now notice, he's calling these men brothers because at this point, he's reaching to them out of their error, saying, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Jump down to verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You see, the apostle Peter, even though he was steeped in all of the Jewish tradition growing up, when he came to know the Lord Jesus and know the saving grace of his gospel, he came to recognize through that and through some other things. You remember one of those was the vision that Peter had of all the animals that came down on a sheet. And that's when God revealed to Peter that salvation was also coming to the Gentiles just as it did to the Jews. When all of those things coalesced and happened as they did, Peter was quick to defend the truth, even in the face of his own Jewish brothers. Not physical brothers, but brothers according to the flesh, according to flesh and blood. Now, that's a positive example of the way that Peter defended the sound doctrine of the saving grace of the gospel for Jew and Gentile alike. But if you've ever read Galatians, you recognize that there was also a time whenever Peter had to be corrected for his unwillingness to do in 
Galatians chapter 2, what he had done in Acts chapter 15. If you flip to Galatians chapter 2, I'll just set the, the scene here as you're turning there. This is Paul's correction of Peter for his hypocrisy in eating with Gentile believers at Antioch only before Jews were present, only before some brothers from James came to join them. Galatians 2.14, this is Paul reminiscing back on the scene. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is Peter, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what do we notice from the life of Peter, at least with regard to standing for truth? We learned that it was very difficult for even the first century apostles to live out the faith that had so clearly been taught to them and handed down to them by the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how much more difficult do you think it was over the course of the first and the second century for Christians to live out the truth once Jesus had died, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father? Let's look at one more. We're going to look at the Apostle John and the docetist, or the docetist, as they came to be called. Now, as you turn to the book of 1 John, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, but I want to also set the table once again for what doceticism is. Doceticism, according to Justo Gonzalez, was, quote, a name derived from a Greek word meaning to seem. The Greek word dokeo means to seem or to appear. And it implied in one way or another that the body of Jesus only appeared to be fully human, but it was not, close quote. So docetus or docetism, they taught that Jesus came, but, and, and Jesus was very real here on this earth, but he was only an image. He was only in spirit form. He was only like, maybe like a hologram or something of the sort. If you would have tried to touch Jesus, you could not touch Jesus. If you would have tried to embrace Jesus, you would not have been able to embrace him. Why? Because he wasn't physical. He wasn't material. He was only spirit. I'll explain why they believe this later on in just a moment. Docetists or docetists claim that the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus were all merely spiritual realities. That Jesus wasn't physically inside of Mary's womb. Just like he wasn't physically crucified to a cross, or physically laid in a tomb. And he wasn't physically raised from the dead. Now, based upon the looks on some of your faces, I can almost imagine what you're thinking. It kind of matters that Jesus was physically all those things, amen, in order for the gospel to be true. So let me just say this before we go any further. If you believe that Jesus only existed here spiritually, and that Jesus did not physically do all of those things. And here's essentially what that means. It means that you're destined for an eternity in hell that is far worse than a mere spiritual reality. Because hell will be a physical reality. Amen? Those who embrace this teaching fail to recognize that the physical life of Christ matters. So does his physical death, his physical burial, his physical resurrection, and even his bodily ascension to the right hand of the Father. I made that claim Sunday 
that Jesus at this moment has a resurrected and a glorified body as he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that's how we will see him one day in heaven. All of that matters. According to another theologian, Miller J. Erickson, docetism is the main heresy that John was combating in his first epistle. So as we look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I want you to see how John goes the, on the attack against this early Christian heresy in these first three verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and notice this, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we Proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Who, so who was it that the apostles saw? Who was it the apostles heard with their own physical ears, with a physical voice? Who was it that the apostles gazed upon? Who was it that the apostles touched? Who is this word of life that was manifest to them? It was the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. Just as John said, by the way, in his gospel account, the very same thing in John chapter 1, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's important that we understand some of the historical background of the first century because it helps us realize why the disciples, why these apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write as they wrote. Because there were very real false teachers that were teaching these sorts of heresies in the first century. Peter dealt with it. Paul dealt with it. John dealt with it. And each of the battles that I just listed laid the foundation for the more fully developed doctrinal battles of the, next two centuries, of the next two centuries. And here's the deal about heresies, okay? Heresies don't simply die. What they do is they reincarnate. Every modern-day heresy, virtually every modern-day heresy that I've ever heard of anyway, is some regurgitation, some reincarnation, some reinvention of a previous heresy that came before it. You see, Satan is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And Satan is good at what he does. In fact, he's so good that he keeps redeveloping, reimagining, repackaging, and representing the same old garbage that he's always presented. And generation after generation buys into some rebranded form of what has already been disproven. I've told us that one reason why we need to study Christian history is because history tends to repeat itself. And if you and I aren't at least a little bit familiar with where Christians have strayed in the past, where people have walked not in the faith but away from the faith in the past, then either you or someone you love 
or someone you disciple will be destined to do the same in the future at some point. Because that's the way that Satan works throughout human history. So now that we've looked at some of these first century heresies, let's consider some fully baked heresies. And I, I realize now that as I put this together, there's a lot of food analogies. I must have been hungry when I was writing this earlier. But we're going to look at some fully baked heresies now. And this is where we're going to get a little bit deeper. So I, I do apologize because some of this is going to be a little bit thicker. But it's important that we understand where all these first century teachings ended up going and how they developed so the first thing that I want us to consider, it's a word that you've probably heard before. It's a word called Gnosticism or the Gnostics. Has anybody ever heard of the Gnostics before or Gnosticism before? Okay, Gnosticism is perhaps the most predominant heresy that existed from the time of the second century up through the third century, reaching in to about the beginning of the fourth century. And in fact, there are probably still people today on this planet that believe some of these teachings. Here's a definition from a, a scholar by the name of Nick Needham concerning Gnosticism. This is a little bit long, but I couldn't say it any better or more concisely, so I just, I, I am ripping him off, but I am giving him credit, so I'm not plagiarizing here. This is from him, not me. He says, quote, when we speak of Gnosticism, we must not think of one single united organization or philosophy. There was a huge and astonishing variety of different Gnostic groups. And he goes on to mention at least 12 different Gnostic groups that existed in these first couple of centuries. Um, we could say that even one of those Gnostic groups reaches back as far as, I believe it's uh, Acts chapter 8 where it talks about Simon the sorcerer. We believe that he believed this stuff, that that's what he was doing, was believing one of these flavors of early Christian Gnosticism. And Doceticism that I mentioned just a moment ago, Gnosticism was really walking hand in hand with what Doceticism was. It was really kind of birthed out of that teaching. I'll continue with this quote. Needham goes on to say, however, all of these views shared a number of basic beliefs in common. They all claim that they possessed a special knowledge or gnosis, and that's where Gnosticism comes from. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. So they all possess some special sort of knowledge of spiritual truth which was not available to the ordinary Christian. Jesus had privately taught the secret knowledge to his apostles, they said, and it had been passed on and handed down to the Gnostics. It was impossible, Gnostics argued, to understand the gospel correctly without this secret knowledge, close quote. I recognize that's a loaded definition. There's a lot of parts to that. I'm going to try to be as basic and general as I can in describing what Gnosticism was. But again, it's important that we at least try to put our arms around this because it's going to help inform a lot of the context for 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century Christianity. Gnostics believed in a supreme God, but he was a God, I'm using air quotes, he was a God above even the God of the Old Testament. They referred to the God of the Old Testament as the demiurge, that's the Greek term for architect. They believed that this, that this supreme God was above the God of the Old Testament, and the God of the Old Testament, or the demiurge, was wicked. And that explains why he wanted to create stuff. Because they believed, by the way, that matter, material things, physical things, 
Everything physical was evil. So by creating the world, that was an expression of the Old Testament God's evil. He was fleshing out, no pun intended, he was fleshing out his evil in creating the world and trapping the souls of people inside of physical bodies. So their idea of salvation was to escape this physical mortal world and to find a way back into the spiritual realm that we came from and that we originated in. That's what they believed. I know it's crazy. I know it's harebrained, but that's what they believed. By the way, Gnosticism wasn't just limited to certain religious cults. Gnosticism, there were Gnostic cults even outside of Christian belief that, that denied all of, of what Jesus taught. But Christ, so-called Christian Gnostics, again using air quotes, they mixed these ideas of the spiritual being good, the physical being bad, with the things that Jesus taught and they believed that that was the way that you could find salvation. Now, the way that Jesus fits into all this goes along with what I was teaching other about docetism. Much like docetism, Gnostics believed that Jesus didn't have a physical body. Now, you probably know, after what I just told you, why they believed Jesus didn't have a physical body. Why? Because if Jesus would have had a physical body, that would have made him evil too. Does that make sense? So that's why they believe that Jesus just came down in his holographic version, like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars or something, or Yoda. And that was how he, he appeared here on the earth, because he was just a spirit. He wasn't really in a body. If he would have been in a body, he would have been given over to evil. They didn't believe that Jesus was evil. They believed that he was one of these emanating spirits that the supreme being had sent to the earth in order to reveal secret knowledge. He wasn't the only one of those. They believe in, in many of these emanating spirits. They called aeons or eons. I'm not exactly certain of the right pronunciation. But they believe that Jesus was the greatest one of those. You see how this is all really confusing in a hurry, right? I'm trying to be as general as I can. But they denied, the long and short of it was that they denied that Jesus was a real person. Let's move on to another type of first and second century heresy. And really, Gnosticism develops mostly in the second century um, there were the early tremors of it in the first century from, from what I mentioned earlier, docetism, but the second century is where it, it kind of fully blooms. A second heresy was Ebionism. And you see there that I've got that it's fully baked Judy, Judaizers. That's what these people were. According to a Millard Erickson, again, Ebionism denied the actual deity of Christ. So let's think about this for a second. Gnosticism denied the humanity of Christ. Ebionism denied the deity of Christ. Do you see why each of those things would be such a big deal? On the one hand, you have people saying that Jesus was really God, but he wasn't really a man. On the other hand, you have these other people saying, no, 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 Jesus was really a man, but he wasn't really God. These people believed that Jesus was a good moral teacher. And in fact, they would even believe in the sinlessness of Jesus in fulfilling the law of God. But they believe that's where it stopped. Jesus wasn't really God. He was rather a normal man who was adopted by God at his baptism. They believe that when Jesus was baptized by John and the Spirit came to rest upon him like a dove, that at that moment, Jesus was borrowing some sort of divinity from God. But he wasn't really God. Again, far-fetched. But imagine when there's this brand new revolutionary. And when I say brand new, I don't mean that Christianity was brand new and that this was the, this was the first uh, awakening of Christianity. Christianity has been alive since, God, since before God created the world. 
He had always planned to send Christ. But the fulfillment of, of all that had taken place and been promised to Abraham was now coming in this, this relatively new uh, fulfillment, this, re- this relatively newly fulfilled teaching was beginning to spread throughout the world. You can imagine how it was very easily muddied, how it was very easily twisted and distorted by these first century heresies. And with all that, I want us to recognize that not only did each of these two heresies reject on one hand the humanity of Jesus and Gnosticism and in Ebionism, it rejected the divinity of Jesus, but on the other hand, get this, they also rejected certain parts of the word of God itself. Because the Gnostics believed that the God of the Old Testament was evil, what do you think they did with the Old Testament? Think they believed any of that? Nope. They threw that out. That's not scripture. That's not good. That was written by an evil God. They didn't believe the scriptures of the Old Testament. Ebionites, guess what they did? Because they didn't believe in the deity of Jesus, they rejected everything that Paul had to say because Paul has a lot to say about Jesus being God. So on the one hand, you have people denying either the humanity or the deity of Jesus, but in order to do that, you know what they also have to do? They also have to reject the very word of God. Beloved, the reason why I've gone to great length this evening to describe these early first and second and third century heresies is because they were founded, they were rooted, they, they were birthed out of a rejection of thus saith the Lord. And just take a look around today. The deviations from historic Christianity, the deviations from Orthodox Christianity, do you know what they all have in common? Those two same things. A denial of who Jesus is in truth and a denial of the word of God in truth. Because here's what you have to do in order to teach false doctrine. You have to deny who Jesus is and you have to reject at least some part of the word of God. Because you've got to be able to make room to make God say what you want him to say and be who you want him to be. Do you see the danger? Do you see the importance in recognizing this pattern all throughout church history? I hope that you do. And I hope that this evening, through the midst of this, uh, my words have been more helpful than they've been confusing. We'll take some questions here in a minute, by the way, if you have any. Finally, I want us to just introduce, we're not going to dive into the deep depths of this heretical water just yet. We will in the coming weeks, be assured of that. But coming on the hills of Gnosticism and Ebionism, by the time we get to the third century, we're going to see another heresy called Arianism begin to take root. Actually, fourth century, pardon, fourth century Arianism is going to begin to take root. We'll talk more about that when we talk about the Council of Nicaea, when we talk about a man named Athanasius and another man named Arius, whom this heresy came from. But Arianism, I'll just give you a little precursor for it. Again, what did I say all these false teachings had in common? They denied part of the scriptures and they denied part of who Jesus is. Arius used the scriptures and twisted them in order to say that Jesus was a created being of God, that there was a time when the sun was not. That was his famous line. And he argued from the scriptures that Jesus had one time not existed. So we'll get to talking about that a little on later down the line. So in conclusion this evening, 
Where do we land with all this? How should we as believers think about these things when we come across them? By the way, Christian history is littered, littered with truth and heresy, with what is absolutely right, with what is absolutely wrong, and with what just kind of seems to be a little bit right, but if it's a little bit right and it's got some wrong in it, which category should you throw it in? Should throw it in error, right? Should throw it in heresy. How should we think about that? Well, let me just say this about the church. It is the love that the church has for the truth of the gospel that compels her to defend that same truth unapologetically. That's what we see taking place throughout the New Testament. It's what we see taking place throughout the first and second century. We'll talk a little bit biographically of some of those great men who defended the truth a little bit later on. And it's that same love for the truth of God's word and for the purity of of every word that comes forth from the mouth of the living God that has supported the church and that the church has rested upon for the past 2,000 years. That has been the church's defense. That has been the church's anchor, the truth of who Jesus is. Remember, everything goes back to what Jesus told Peter, that flesh and blood has not revealed this truth to you of who I am as the Christ, the Son of the living God. My Father has revealed it. And because of that, the church continues to defend it. I'll leave you with a quote. This is from a Puritan named Thomas Watson. I love what he says about the meaningfulness of truth. Listen to these words. He said, quote, If we love Christ, we shall grieve for those things that grieve him. We shall grieve to see truth bleeding, heretics increasing. We shall grieve to see toleration setting up its mast and topsail and multitudes sailing in this ship to hell. Now, is that not what we see going on in our day too? People are jumping on the ship that is headed to hell that has a banner that says, this is a new kind of Christianity. Hop on board. Everything's easy here. Nothing's hard here. God agrees with you always on this ship. It's a ship that's sailing straight to hell. Watson goes on to say, toleration is the grave of reformation, close quote. Toleration is the grave of reformation. In other words, the more that we tolerate false teaching, the more that we allow it to exist, the more that we're just kind of indifferent toward it or just kind of keep it at an arm's length, but don't don't ever say anything about it, don't ever address it, don't ever try to correct it, the longer that we tolerate, the more that we will see an inability for the church to move forward in being faithful to right teaching and right truth.